0: with the Scriptures open before us, let us pray, let us seek God, let's ask Him for His blessing, that we would hear His voice speaking to us tonight. O oh God, our Father, we come into Your presence, we praise You for your, your speaking voice tonight. We thank You for Thy love, and we thank You for Thy love as that is revealed in the Scriptures. And as we would contemplate Thy Word now, We pray that you would touch our hearts and teach our souls. May the words of my mouth, meditation of my heart be acceptable in thy sight. O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. Amen. Amen. The message tonight is entitled, No, No, No. We're going to preach upon three no's. Now saying no is often characterized as being simply negative. And negatives are tainted with the idea of being bad. There is a sense in which saying no all the time will certainly breed a a brand of negativity which will get the wrong reaction. And we know that's true. You just can't say no all the time. There are times in life you need a little bit of flexibility. But it is also true that there are times when we must say no. We can't do anything other than say no. Such are the choices we are presented with. There can be no negotiation. There, there can be no compromise. Now, there are people who find it all too easy to refuse. For certain people, refusing others, it comes almost naturally. We call those kinds of people stubborn unwilling to be flexible. They're always saying no, whatever the situation, whatever the circumstances, there's always that sense of negativity. But then there are others and they find it very, very easy to say yes. And those kinds of people are weak. They bend to every idea. They're easily led. They're distracted. They're devoid of principle because they say yes all the time. Very often plans are not thought through. So there's a happy medium required where saying no is concerned. But that is... True in every department of life, isn't that right? But when we say no at the correct time and use the no wisely, that's a blessed thing and that's a happy thing. And it's not positive, it, it, it's, it's not negative. Rather, it's, it's a very positive, a very wholesome thing. And the results and blessings that flow from saying no at the right times, well, they're good. And sometimes positive things are taught by the use of the negative. For example, whenever we read about heaven in the book of Revelation, heaven is a place defined by negatives. And yes, we do read the positive things. There's going to be light shining all the time, and there's golden streets, and all the rest of it. But the most powerful pictures of heaven are the negative pictures, the things that aren't there. So, there's no sickness, and there's no death, and there's no night, and there's no sorrow, and there are no tears. And you think of all of these things, and suddenly we think of all the bad things we have on earth, and heaven's a place that doesn't have any of that. And suddenly, by the use of the negative, we get a sense of the the glory of heaven. And that really is the best way of understanding these no's here in Romans chapter 8. Because Romans chapter 8 teaches us what it means to be a Christian. And there are three negatives here. Wonderful negatives. The first one we have in in Romans chapter 8 verse 1. No condemnation. The Christian will never be condemned. And that's at the very end of uh, that's at the very beginning of Romans chapter eight. And then you come to the very end of Romans chapter eight. And we read in verse thirty-nine Nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So this chapter it begins with no condemnation and it ends with no separation. We'll never be separated from the love of God. But there is another no as well, certainly implied really powerfully in verse 31. If God be for us, who can be against us? There's no defeat. So for the Christian, there is no condemnation, there is no defeat, and there is no separation. These are things that the child of God will never, ever experience. And that should be a blessed thought as we look at this as Christians. But if you're here tonight and if you're not saved, this is what you're missing out on. This is what you can have because you at this present point in time are sitting in a place of condemnation, you're sitting in a place of defeat, and you're sitting in a place where you at this moment in time are separated from the grace of God. And that's a solemn place to be in. But for the Christian, there's no condemnation, there's no defeat, and there's no separation. And you can cross that divide tonight, dear a friend, by simply saying yes to Jesus Christ. Because in the worst possible sense, you've been saying no over all these years. And so let us consider these three definitions of Christianity tonight. First of all, let's think about no condemnation. And this great chapter, it begins with, the words, there is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. Over these past weeks in the gospel, we have been meditating upon how the gospel sets the prisoner free. And that's been a theme that has run through the last two messages, how God sets the prisoner free. And we thought about condemnation last week through the illustration of Peter's release from prison. There he was. He was under condemnation, facing a certain death penalty. When he was released, he was set free. And we drew your attention to that great verse in John chapter 3, where the Lord Jesus Christ said, he that believeth not is condemned already. But when we believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we are not condemned. So those that refuse to believe, they're condemned. But those that do believe, put their faith in Christ, they are not condemned. So let's just think about this word, condemnation. Condemnation. This is the judgment of God. This is the judgment of God's law. It's the judgment of God's law upon our depravity. Yes, our depravity. Because we are all born into this world as depraved people. We're depraved in our minds, we're depraved in our attitudes, we're depraved in our hearts, we're depraved in our thinking. There's no good thing in us. We cannot conjure up one good thought about God because there is none that seeketh after God, there is none that doeth good. No, not one, Paul wrote to the Romans. And we are condemned on that account because of our very nature. And we cannot transform our nature. By a sleight of hand, our nature cannot be changed. Going through some form of counseling technique can't change your nature. Taking some type of medication can't change your nature. We are depraved sinners in the sight of God. And the Bible says that because of that depraved nature, our wills are totally inclined away from God and towards sin. David talked about being conceived in iniquity. In sin, he said, my mother conceived me. He was born in sin, shaping in an iniquity. And that's the way we are. Sin is what we are. It's not merely about what we do. Yes, we do sin. We commit sin. We think sin, put our hands to sin. But ultimately, sin is what we are within our hearts, within our nature, within our souls. Sin is our moral condition. It's our moral state. We are sinners before a holy God that makes us guilty. And condemnation is the verdict of God the great judge upon our natures. It is the verdict of God's holy law upon our natures. It is where God says that we are a guilty people in His sight, and only those whose sins have been removed by the precious blood of Jesus Christ are in a state of no condemnation. Sitting in church doesn't translate you into a state of no condemnation. Saying prayers doesn't translate you into a state of no condemnation. Knowing the Bible and reading the Bible doesn't translate you into a state of no condemnation. Making some kind of decision doesn't translate you into a state of no condemnation because that will be all about you. And the old sinful nature cannot do any good thing. The good that you attempt to do is still tainted by sin. And if we sin just in one area, be good in every other area, but fall in one area, we're guilty of the whole law. And there is not one person who can say that they've kept the law of God from start to finish, from back to front, in perfection. There is no one perfect, and I'm sure you would agree with that. Therefore, As God looks upon the sinner who's out of Christ, God says, Condemned, condemned, condemned. An awful thing to be guilty before God. In Romans chapter 3, Paul said, Now what things soever the law saith, it saith to them that are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped, and all the world may become guilty before God. So often, we like to use excuses. We use the little word, but, but try and introduce some idea to alleviate our guilt, but you can't do that before God. Every tongue is stopped in His presence. Every mouth ceases. There's no more to say. God says, condemn. This is a, a legal word. It's a very serious legal word, and it's not about a legality before the laws of this world, but it's about a legality before God, the great justice of all and yet there is something remarkable here where the Christian is concerned. There is therefore now no condemnation. You should want to know how this is so. You should want to know how I can be in a place where I am no longer condemned. You're facing out into eternity. You're facing out at the great white throne. You're facing out at death. Condemned! But here are a people who are not condemned. No condemnation. How can this be? You should want to know how this can be. That you might be translated into this happy place. That you might be set free from the chains that bind you. And the answer is in the text. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. Those that are in Christ Jesus are not condemned. And what does Christ do that sets us free from condemnation? When you look at verse 3 of Romans 8, and we read what Christ does For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin condemned sin in the flesh. Why can the law not save us? Because it's weak through the flesh. It's not that the law is weak. We are weak. It's our flesh is weak. We break the law. So the law couldn't save. The law was a code. And yes, keep that law and you'll be Okay. But you have to keep it from the moment you're conceived in your mother's womb to the moment you die. And you have to keep it in your heart and your thought and your thinking. Nobody can do that. So the law fails to save us. All the law does is condemn us. All the law does is make us sinners. But then God sent his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. It is our flesh that lets us down. It's our sinful nature that lets us down. But Christ took upon himself the likeness of sinful flesh. He did not become a sinner, but he took the likeness of his sinful creatures. He took upon himself humanity without sin. But yet we are told in Isaiah 53, there was no beauty in him that we should desire him. To all intents and purposes, he looked like any other man until you saw his miracles, until you heard the things that he did, and then you realized, what manner of man is this? But still, he took upon himself our nature, and he took upon himself the weaknesses of humanity without sin. So he suffered pain, and yes, he died. And that is the great miracle of all, that immortality could die. But how did he die, and why did he die? Well, we are told that God sent His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin condemned sin in the flesh. All of our wickedness, all of our sin, all of our guilt was put right there upon Him, and He was condemned for us. There's that word again, condemnation. He was condemned, not for His sin, for He had none, but He was condemned for our sin. And there we have the great exchange, that our sin would be laid upon Him, that we might have His righteousness. And with his righteousness, we are no longer condemned. We're justified. That's another great legal term. Justified. Made as if we had never sinned because we've been given the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Faith, Martin Luther said, unites the soul with Christ as a spouse with her husband. Everything which Christ has becomes the property of the believing soul. Everything which the soul has becomes the property of Christ. Christ possesses all blessings and eternal life. They are thenceforth the property of the soul. Christ is married to the Christian, and everything that Christ has is ours. Eternal life is ours. His righteousness is ours. God looks upon the Christian. He cannot condemn the Christian. For God to condemn the Christian, would be for God to cease to be God because he cannot condemn his Son, Jesus Christ. That's why the Christian is absolutely and completely secure for eternity. Because it's all about Christ, it's not about us. That's how we can have assurance and peace with God. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. But let us move on. And let's look at the second, no, no defeat. We look at verse 31, and Paul says, if God be for us, who can be against us? Let's just think about the people that Paul was writing to. Christians living in Rome. Christians who would be called to face persecution. Persecution. They were representing Christ in a very hostile environment. Their faith was absolutely different from the faith of the the Roman gods. And the Romans were addicted to their idolatry and to their paganism. They had many, many temples worshiping all of these gods. And the Christians' faith was, was so different. And eventually, that difference and that distinction would bring about fearful persecutions. Fearful persecutions in the lifetime of the apostle. He would die at the point of a Roman sword, and fearful persecutions in the lifetime of these people that he wrote to. Many of these people whom he was writing to would die for their faith. And Paul was seeking to encourage God's people and to prepare them for this time of suffering. And he was saying, whatever happens to you in this life, there will be no defeat. If God be for us, who can be against us? You may feel yourself weak when faced with a Roman persecutor, but you will be strong because God is with you. You may seem to be weak as far as the Roman power is concerned, but you're not weak, because God is with you, and God is for you. And if God is for you, who can be against you? And we come down to verse 37, where he picks this up, and he says, "'Nay, and all these things,' and all what things?' He talks about tribulation, distress— Famine, nakedness, pearl, sword. Talks about a people who are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. And all of these things, though they take you and slaughter you, you will be more than a conqueror through him that loved us. More than conquerors. He doesn't say, you will be a conqueror. That would be good enough. To be told by God, you're going to be a conqueror. I think that would be good enough for me. It's not good enough for God. He said, you'll not just be a conqueror. You will be more than a conqueror. More than a conqueror. That's amazing. The Romans had a goddess of victory. The name of that goddess is the very name that many people Where upon their feet today. Nike. Nike was the goddess of victory. And this is the word here. Conquerors, it's the same word as the word Nike, except the word super goes before it. A super Nike, a a super conqueror, more than a conqueror. So, what's he getting at? How, How is it that in this world, Faced with so much trouble, we think of the, the troubles that we face in this world, the pains that we face, the sorrows that we face, the uncertainties of life. You think of all of that. And how is it the Christian in the face of all the adversity is more than a conqueror? How is this? Well, you look again at verse 37. Again, it comes back to Christ. Through him that loved us. And you come back in your scriptures to verse 34. And Paul, he asks a number of questions in this latter part of Romans 8. He asked the question, if God be for us, who can be against us? He asked the question in verse 33, who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? He asked the question in verse 34, who is he that condemneth? Who is the person that can condemn the Christian? Again, you have this word condemnation. Is there anyone out there who can condemn the Christian? Is there anyone out there who can send the Christian away? Condemnation. Who is he that condemneth? Here's the answer. It is Christ that died. Yea, rather, that is risen again. Who is even at the right hand of God. Who also maketh intercession for us. You see, the Christian stands in the territory of Calvary where Christ died for our sins. But the Christian also stands on the territory of resurrection, where Christ rose again. The only leader of any great world faith or of any faith who rose again. That claim is made for no one else because no one else rose again. That claim is made for no one else for very good reason because no one else ever saw a resurrection but the disciples of our Lord, they saw a resurrection. And that's why this story has triumphed so much. And as God's people, we stand in the territory of resurrection. That principally is why we are more than conquerors, because our Savior died and he rose again. And that is our constant hope. That is our constant inspiration. That's why we have a message to preach, and we can proclaim it with such passion, because Jesus Christ really does live. But yet his work is not done. Because look at what he says also in verse 34, another reason why we are more than conquerors, never defeated. He says, "Christ is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us." He's the interceder. The word here refers to the work of the paraclete, the council and a court he's arguing our case. He's arguing our case. And you think of our great high priest, and he's there at the right hand of God, and he has our names constantly upon his lips. He has our needs upon his heart. He is touched with the very feeling of our infirmities, as Paul wrote again in Hebrews chapter 3. And there he stands before that throne of grace, interceding for us continually. Ah, we are more than conquerors with such a Savior. We cannot be defeated. We'll never be defeated. Church of Christ will never be vanquished. Because Jesus Christ, He lives today. No defeat. But let's come to this final no, the final negative of this sublime chapter. No separation. This is. The greatest truth of all. It has been hinted at already, but now we get it in its full orb glory. Verses 38 and 39, for I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels nor principalities, nor powers nor things present nor things to come, nor height nor depth nor any other creature, shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is In Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul is persuaded of something here. In the prayer meeting beforehand, a brother was thinking about King Agrippa in his prayer. Almost thou persuadest me to be a Christian. But King Agrippa wasn't persuaded. Perhaps you've been like that. You haven't come to Christ, you haven't been persuaded. Almost persuaded. You've felt the Holy Spirit plucking at the strings of your heart. But you haven't been persuaded. But Paul is saying something here, for I am persuaded. I am persuaded. What's he persuaded of? That there is nothing that can separate him from the love of God. In life, we face separation. Separation life is a painful process of separation we're separated from youth we're separated from health we become separated from our friends sometimes by the miles. but then we are called to be separated from our loved ones in bereavement life is characterized by separation of course that's one of the great things about heaven no separation from our loved ones who have gone on before We're told in the book of Revelation there's no sea. That's another negative about heaven. There's no sea there. Why is there no sea there? Because the sea speaks of separation. We say farewell to someone who goes across the sea. In heaven there's no sea. There's no separation. But Paul here is not talking about no separation from our loved ones. He's talking about no separation from the love of God. We will never, ever either in this life or the life to come, we will never, ever, ever be separated from the love of God. Never can we be separated from that love. Why? Look at how the chapter ends, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. We are more than conquerors through him that loved us. Nothing can separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. It all comes back to Christ. In Him we stand. In Christ alone our hope is found. The love of God. Can we even begin to understand what it means for God to love us? Can we just take it in? that we tonight are a people loved by God. Love has got to be the most precious word in the English language. Where would we be in this world without love? What comfort a child derives from a mummy and daddy and that love, that love of family. How terrible that there are children out there that aren't loved. Love is such a beautiful word, and it's so pathetic where there is no love. It's so awful when someone does not feel loved. Love is a great need that exists in all of our hearts. Love. It's a precious word. But the love of God. And the love of God takes this word love, and it lifts the word above the natural into the supernatural. It lifts it from the temporal into the eternal It lifts the word from the the human feeling and the human experience into the very heart of God himself, the God that made the heavens and the earth. And he's a God who loves. And he loves you and he loves me. And he pities us as a father pities his children. And you come there to verse 32 of Romans chapter 8. He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all. How shall he not with him also freely give us all things? God did not spare his only Son. And we have no idea what it means for God the Father to love God the Son. The pain of that. As the Father parted from the Son on Calvary's cross, as he didn't spare his own Son, the curse of the law. Christ died the Father gave him up. Christ surrendered himself, and the Father surrendered his Son in order that we might have the love of God. What sacrifice? Love is all about sacrifices. It's all about giving. If someone loves, they will sacrifice. And here is a God who loves us so much that he sacrificed his Son. And God is saying to us here, there's nothing in this world that can separate us from This love of God. The love of God that we see at the cross. There's no separation from that love. We may separate it from other things. The love of God will be constant. It will never be removed. What was Paul persuaded of? You think of the things that he was persuaded of. You you think of some of these things. Death. In death, the love of God would be there. God's love would be there in death he would feel the point of that Roman sword, God's love would be there. In life, you think of the, the troubles that Paul experienced in life, the shipwrecks, the beatings, the persecutions. God's love was there in the midst of it all. Angels, principalities, powers. He's talking there about great spiritual foes. Devil and hell are arrayed against the church of Christ. God's love vanquishes all of that. You think of things present and things to come. You know, you consider everything that's going on in our lives at the present. You know what's going on in your life. I know what's going on in my life. But I want to tell you something. In the midst of whatever you're feeling, God's love is there. R.C. Sproul said, There is not one piece of cosmic dust that is outside God's sovereign control. Every component of each one of our lives. God's there in the midst of it all, whether we see it or not, whether we read it or not, whether we understand it or not, it doesn't matter. His love is there. For all things work together for good to them that love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. That again is Romans eight and the verse twenty-eight, of course. Things present, things to come, whatever there is, around the next corner in the road of life. God's love's there. God's love's there. Nor height, nor depth, you think of the heights, the heights of God's love. The depths, the depths of God's love. There's no place, there's no situation that God's love cannot reach. Nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature. There's nothing. Nothing in this world, nothing in the world to come. Nothing in the natural world, nothing in the supernatural world. There's nowhere where God's love will not exist, where God's people are. So, if we face out into another week, whatever... Trials come our way, whatever burdens we're called to carry. Always remember this nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. There was a preacher in a bygone day, his name was Robert Bruce. This story came to mind. I read this a very long time ago. He was an old man. He was breakfasting with his family one morning and he said daughter hark doth not my master call me he asked for his bible but his eyesight was very poor and he couldn't even read he said open the bible at romans 8 put my finger on the passage, I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. He said, as my finger upon the words? And she said, It is. I have refreshed myself, he said, with you this morning, and shall be at the banquet of my Savior, ere it is night and that day passed into the very presence of God and so it will be for each one of us who knows and loves Christ and dear friend if you're not saved you be ready you be prepared that you might step into the experience of knowing this unsearchable love let's bow for prayer Oh Lord, we come to you. We thank you for the Word of God. We thank you for the love of God revealed in Scripture. We thank you for what you do for your dear children. What a glory it is just to know that Jesus loves me, this I know. For the Bible tells me so. For those who don't know you, may there be a drawing to Christ even tonight? Write your truth upon every heart for Christ's sake. Amen let sing this closing hymn.